This is Jimmy Scroggins. I'm the lead pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Are you tired of going to conferences, reading books, and listening to speakers who tell you how to do church when you know that you cannot do what they are recommending? You've come to the right place on our podcast. We're going to give you principles, strategies, and ideas that you can implement right now with the resources you have at your church because this is church for the rest of us. Hey, welcome back to Church for the Rest of Us. Glad you're joining us today. We have a very special guest. This is just another episode, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, Communications Director at Family Church, Leslie Bennett. We are coming at you live high atop, from high atop the complex, downtown West Palm Beach, a family church. That means the third floor corner of my office. And we're going to talk today to Sam Chan. Sam is an actual doctor, and I mean the kind of doctor that can help people. He's a doctor of medicine, and he also has a PhD in theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Sam's joining us from Australia, where it's 5 a.m. while we're taping this, and he works with City Bible Forum as a public speaker. And he says he has one of the best jobs around because he helps Christian workers and all kinds of workers ask bigger questions about life. So, Sam, welcome. I just want to say, Leslie, that I've learned so much from Sam. His book on evangelism is fantastic, and we'll get him to talk about that in a minute. But Sam's produced all these YouTube videos that we've used a lot mm-hmm. as we've tried to take our, you know, the resources that we have and do the best we can to produce communication visually during the pandemic. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you with us, Sam. It's a real honor. And our friend, Bernie Cueto, our mutual friend, Bernie, is the <laughs> one who told us about you. And I think he's going to be on our next episode. So we're looking forward to that. So just as we get started, Sam, why don't you tell us a little bit about your family, your background in ministry and what you're doing now? So hi from Sydney, Australia. It's five in the morning, but in the future, I'm a day ahead. That's right. And so that means I can tell you what the share market has done. I can tell you what the lotto numbers are because I'm one day ahead of you guys over there. Awesome. Um, Good to know. Yeah, that's right. So I'm married. I've got three young boys, Toby, Cooper, and Jaunty. Toby, we named after top 10 dog names because not, my name, Sam, has always been a top 10 <laughs> dog name. That's good. But the number one dog name in Australia is Jack, but we just call him Jackie Chan because that would lead to no. too many right, problems. Right. And boys are fun. They're just like dogs. You've got to feed them and give them a ball to play with. So they're quite low maintenance. I work one day a week as a medical doctor, but I work as a surgical assistant. And people say, what is a surgical assistant? Well, if you go to the hospital, you get three bills from the doctors. The first bill is from the surgeon. You think, fair enough. Second bill is from the anesthesiologist. You think, okay, fair enough, they kept me alive. And you think, who's this bozo sending me a third bill? That is me, the surgical assistant. (laughs) So my most important job is to say hi to you before they put you to sleep. Hi, my name is Sam. I'm the surgical assistant. And you'll be getting a bill from me in two weeks' time. And I've just got the easy job. I just hold the leg while the surgeon (laughs) operates on your leg. Okay. I'm trying to keep that in mind. Can do what I do. You know, the next time I have leg surgery, I'm going to say, which one of you is the surgical assistant? That's right. All right. That's awesome. So, Sam, you've written um, on all these different things, but COVID 19 has kind of changed everything for all of us. Can you tell us a little bit about how COVID 19 has changed your life and what you do? Yes. COVID 19, just overnight, it changed everything. So, I work as a medical doctor and The reason why Asians want to become doctors, it's because it's a safe, secure job. And suddenly overnight, it wasn't safe because we were on the front line where the virus was. And it wasn't secure because they shut down all elective surgery for at least six weeks. So suddenly I had no work, no income for six weeks. And that's what it's brought in. It's brought uncertainty 
into the lives of everyone. We just don't know what's going to happen next week, let alone next year. So I remember I was at a conference last week and they had to say, just type in one word to describe how you feel right now. And I typed in, without looking at anyone else, uncertainty. And then they showed on the screen what everyone had typed and boom, that was the one word everyone else had typed in, uncertainty. And we just don't know what's going to happen. Australia, we thought we had it all under control. The first wave came and it lasted like one month. We only got a few hundred and we flattened the curve. And then we come out with this post-COVID playbook and we felt like bozos saying our world has changed forever because with Australia, look, it didn't. Like we were going to come out of isolation and then boom, the second wave hit when we came out of isolation. Because someone had once said, you don't shut down the freeways if you have 30 car accidents in this day. But the analogy breaks down because on freeways, you know, 30 accidents doesn't become 300 tomorrow and 3,000 the next right. day. But that's what it seems with this virus, so much uncertainty as to what's going on. That's so true. Well, I think it kind of leads, that's exactly how I feel. You know, I've said one of the challenges of leadership right now is that it's hard to make plans because of the uncertainty. So you can't, it's hard to plan effectively. And boy, I think that this kind of goes into our next question. I think it leads right into it. You know, as you think about communicating, I think this kind of uncertainty creates all kinds of opportunities for gospel conversations, doesn't it? That's right. So before I say, if you wanted to talk to someone about faith, spirituality, or religion, people just were not interested. They just want to talk about the weekend, the weather, and the sport. Right now, no one wants to talk about the weekend because in isolation, the difference between a weekend and a weekday is completely blurred. Yeah, Some of the isolations is. where every day feels like Wednesday, yeah. and then there's no sport to talk about. So I've really noticed when you ask people, how are you doing? And then I call it the power of the second question. How are you really doing? People are really happy to talk about their deepest, most true, most dark fears right now. And, you know, in the past, I remember on a Sunday I went to a shop and just to be polite, I said to the shopkeeper, how are things? She said, things are great, you know, and then she said to me, how's your day been? What have you been up to? And I froze because it was a Sunday. I just come from church. And even as a, in full-time Christian ministry, you find it awkward to talk about church in a secular public setting. But suddenly now with COVID, if you tell people, oh, we just did online church, people just go, oh, wow, tell me what was that like? So people are so much more open to talk about prayer, religion, faith, and spirituality right now. Hey, if you, Leslie, if, if uh, Sam was talking in Australia, I wonder if they're as impressed with his accent as I am. I don't know. Probably <laughs> might be kind of common, but we love it. <laughs> I think it's amazing. All right, Sam. So that's happening. So what kind of opportunities does this present for us as Christian and Christian workers and, you know, people who want to have gospel conversations? What should we be looking for in this kind of new era of life? Yeah, I think just knowing that people are not coping Everyone's putting on this very, very brave face right now. But deep down, there's this fear of impending doom and uncertainty. We've been so used to a high level of control and suddenly overnight that's just been ripped up. And I say we just have to listen. And again, I call it the power of that second question. How are you doing? How are you really doing? When I was in medicine, we used to joke that all you had to do to be a psychiatrist or psychologist was just to know how to ask two questions. How are you doing? How are you really doing? And then, then people will open up. And I find that the instant people say, oh, you know, things aren't going well. I just simply say, hey, my wife and my kids, we pray every night. Can we pray for you? 
And then up until now, no one want to talk about prayer. But studies show everyone's praying, like everyone is praying right now. They now say, oh, that would be wonderful. Please, could you? And then the next day I simply say, hey, my wife and my kids, we prayed for you last night. How are you doing? And now people, I think just be ready to listen first. People are just looking for someone to talk to and to be understood. They say home is where you're understood and you keep looking for a place you can call home, somewhere where you're understood. It's almost like all we have to do is put ourselves in the space of our friends where we can be that understanding friend that they can talk to and then we can pray for them and we can be the one that they can talk about. Like I said before, we can only talk about small talk, the weather, the weekend and the sport. But now we can be that space where people can talk about values, worldviews and just what's most true, most real for them. Well, I think as a pastor, one of the things that's a challenge for me, just even in my personal evangelism, is it seems like it's easier to have those conversations, but I'm not sure what to say. It seems like things are more sensitive right now. Oh, things are very sensitive. (laughs) And we know there's that famous study put out by the Barnard Group, which says 47% of millennials say it's wrong to evangelize. Not just awkward, not just scary, but morally wrong. So there's this fairly, but I think, again, with COVID, suddenly people realize I don't have all the answers. I think it used to be morally wrong to evangelize because that would be to imply the other person is not doing well. But I think with COVID, now people are free to say, you know what, I'm not doing well. And what I say is up until now, you know, the Western storyline was, and it went like this, and we all know the Western storyline because it's in every Hollywood movie, it's in every high school, college commencement speech, and it's this, you know, on the day I was born, I was amazing. I was pure. I was true, I was authentic, but then when I grew up, everything messed me up. Authority figures messed me up, teachers messed me up, the church messed me up, my parents messed me up. So my mission in life is to be brave and just be true to myself and do whatever it takes to make me happy. And it's been a great story of independence, freedom and control, right? But just overnight realise those things don't work. I'm not independent, I need social responsibility. I'm not free, I'm in lockdown. And I have no control. In the West, we've had this illusion of control. I say, you know, when you go ask for a coffee, you got to tell them white, do you want it, you know, with cream, <laughs> with goat's milk, almond milk, <laughs> low-fat milk. You have so many choices, this illusion of control. When you go give birth to a child, you give them this 6, 12-hour birth plan as if you can micromanage, you know, the birth of your child. And suddenly you realise I have no control. I only have uncertainty. I'm actually not doing okay. I do need to be saved. I think that's the thing. It's up until now, it's been an offense to hint that we need a God who saves us. But I think right now, we do want to be rescued. We do need a powerful God who loves us and saves us. What do you think pastors can do right now to help their people have evangelism on their minds? And, you know, because right now in churches, we're all on defense right now. So everybody's just kind of trying to hold on to what you got. You know, how do we keep our people as many as we can? But the thing of it is, we still have just as many lost people right now around us ever. And I'm thinking we should be on offense, but I bet a lot of our listeners can't figure out how to do it right now. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's a both and, not an either or. Right. And, you know, I know in sports, often they say the best offense is the best defense and vice versa. The best defense is the best offense. If you have the ball, they can't be scoring, that sort of thing. And... The same with church. We think discipleship or evangelism, but more and more we realize 
to disciple, we actually get them evangelizing. And that is good disciple making by getting our disciples to evangelize. That makes them strong. Then two things will happen. Number one, right now we have so many de-churched millennials. Right. Sorry to single them out right now, but, but that's where it's happening. You know, they, they say in the millennial generation, we're losing 50% of them between you know, the ages of high school and college. And so if we actually disciple them and evangelize them, you know, that is good disciple making. But also they're the ones doing evangelizing. That makes them stronger as well. And I just went to Amplify 2020 virtually at Wheaton, Chicago. And the big shift that's happening in evangelism is we used to think evangelism was very much event-based, and it still is. I'm in professional Christian ministry as an event-based speaker, so long may it continue. (laughs) But we're (laughs) realizing there has to be a shift now. In the past, evangelism meant trying to get our church people to be brave brave enough to invite your friends to the church evangelistic events. But now we know we're so post-church, post-Christian, post-reach, the best form of evangelism, the most effective form is to get our people doing the one-on-one evangelism. Mm -hmm. So it's great if they can invite people onto our turf for an event, but it's even better if we send them out as what are called disciple makers. And the recent Barnard Group study shows that most of our non-Christian friends if they want to be evangelized, they prefer a one-to-one conversation with a Christian friend. And most of our non-Christian friends, they have a problem with Christianity in the abstract, but they actually don't have a problem with their personal Christian friend. And so we realize, you know, God has given us non-Christian friends for a reason mm-hmm. to have one-on-one conversations with them. Mm-hmm. So, Sam, if you were going to talk to churches and you were going to say these are some steps that you could take with your average church attender, because, you know, you have written a book on evangelism, right? Evangelism in a skeptical world. Pastor Jimmy's done a lot on evangelism. We have a tool here called the Three Circles. He's written a book on that. So you all are professional evangelism people. But for the rest of us who are a little more ordinary, what would you say, you know, what are some things that you could tell us to do? to have a more evangelistic heart or have more effectiveness in this world that seems more open? Yeah, so I think I will say um, it's like doing the dishes. When you come home, you see the dishes all piled up in the sink. It's too many. It's too global. It's too hard. Where do I begin? And my wife always says, break it down into concrete, bite-sized, achievable steps. Here, here's a fork. Begin with a fork. Here, here's a cup. And before you know it, boom, the dishes are done. And it's almost the same. We think, how do I tell my friends about Jesus? This is too big. It's too global. Where do I begin? And it just begins with concrete, bite-sized, achievable steps. And one is just how can I have a coffee with my friend? I call it coffee, dinner, gospel. So step one, just how can I get my friend to have a coffee with me? Because coffee is an easy invite. Can it be a virtual invite? You can do it one-on-one over a screen if you want. And it's a safe invite. It's just a 10 or 20-minute investment of time. It's sort of what I call public space. And the conversation will be about small talk. It's safe talk. But after we've had coffee one or two times, we try to do dinner, some sort of meal. It could be a lunch. That's a big investment. That's a 30, 60-minute conversation. It's a bit more private space. And now the conversation goes to more private matters. And sooner or later, gospel opportunities will arise. And they arise if we ask questions. I think we're always too scared of what to say. But more and more, we realize evangelism 
is the art of conversation and asking questions rather than what to say. Right now they're saying, they're quoting stats like Jesus asked more than 300 questions. He was asked more than 200 questions, but he only answered the question eight times. So it's almost the art of conversation rather than knowing what to say. I say when I was trained in seminary to evangelize, I was trained by preachers. So we thought we had evangelized in a 20-minute monologue like <laughs> we were giving a sermon. But now I say counselors just ask questions and they lead you to discover the answer for yourself. So against the power of the second question, how are you doing? How are things really going? How does that make you feel? We just keep asking those sort of questions and sooner or later they will flip around to us and they'll say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And that's when our gospel opportunities will arise. But it's really the askers just asking questions and letting them talk. Just last week, someone said, oh, my son wants to check out Christianity. And I felt like just immediately downloading what his son had to read. But I paused and I said, oh, why would he want that? And then I found out a lot more from him. Just the other day, I had a nurse ask me, and she wasn't a Christian. She said, what books should I read? And I felt immediately my first response was to tell her the 10 books she needed to read, starting you know, with C.S. Lewis, ending with Timothy Keller. But I was smart enough to say, well, hang on. Why do you ask that? What are you looking for? And then she was able to tell me about her grandmother dying recently. She was grieving. She wasn't coping well with that. She felt lonely. And I thought, wow. So it's the power of asking the question rather than immediately thinking, okay, I need to download a 20-minute monologue on this person. I think that's so powerful because it causes us to think more about them than thinking about ourselves, doesn't it? Yeah. And I tell people, I remember many years ago, I was at a crossroads in my life and I had to decide whether to stay in full-time medicine or go into a full-time Christian ministry. And I asked five friends for advice and I met them for coffee and they monologued for 60 minutes (laughs) telling me the pros and cons of each decision, which one I should make. And I remember walking away very unsatisfied. And I thought, why? Like, I asked them for advice. They gave me their advice. Why was I so unsatisfied? And I think it's because I actually deep down just wanted to talk out aloud Mm. and discover the answer. Then I met a friend who was a chaplain. So he's trained to ask questions. And I said to him, I could stay in full-time medicine. And he just said, you could, couldn't you? And just from that one question, I knew I didn't want to. (laughs) And that made me go into full-time Christian ministry. But it was the power of the question rather than downloading what he wanted to tell me. He led me to discover the answer by myself. And listen, I love that too because he is right. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is always asking questions and he often responds with a question to a question. Yeah. And it's so hard to remember that. And it's a good parenting technique, too. I mean, just when you have your kids um, asking you questions, asking them questions, hear a little more about what they're saying. But I think, like you said, we're so conditioned to think as believers, we need to have all the answers. So let me give you my answers. There's an ego stroke to it also. That's true. So like your kid comes and says, hey, dad, you know, I'm in college and I've got this going on. What do you think? Oh, finally, he's wised up and figured out who to ask. So now I can finally tell him. And I think what Sam's teaching us is that may want to, you know, right? just cool your jets a little bit, ask a better question and find out what they're really, you know. So I really, really appreciate that so much. Well, Sam, we have all of this different resources that you have created to help Christians and churches when it comes to evangelism. Could you just talk to our listeners a little bit about your book and then maybe some other things that you have right now that could help people with 
learning how to do evangelism? Oh, yes. So the book on evangelism came out basically because I used to teach at a seminary and they wanted me to teach evangelism. And I said, no, you know, like the previous guy was amazing. I can't fill his shoes. But then, and I walked away, finally, for the first time, I said no. You know, like as an Asian people-pleasing person, <laughs> I always say yes. But finally, I was brave enough to say no. But the next day, the retiring evangelist just came into my office, boom, dumped his portfolio on my desk, say, you are now teaching evangelism in this seminary. And I thought, oh, okay. And his notes were illegible, so they were useless. And I thought, well, <laughs> hang on. This is actually the perfect time. Blank slate. Just think Australia now, so post-Christian, post-reach, post-church, it's like we're starting all over again. How would a missionary evangelise a Western country like Australia? Like when Billy Graham evangelised, I was young enough, I'm actually old enough, sorry, I was there at the last Billy Graham crusade in the 1970s in Australia and Billy did it all. I heard the 20-minute Bible talk, the choir got up, Billy made his appeal and Billy did the the buses will wait line, like come to the front, the buses will wait. And I suddenly realised every non-believer tonight came on a church bus. <laughs> they were way more churched than we thought they were. Maybe they were on the church soccer team. Maybe they went to Sunday school as a boy and stopped believing. But they were way more churched than we thought they were. People are not coming on church buses anymore. So it's almost like we have to be a blank slate, start again. So I thought, okay, using the principles of missiology, storytelling, contextualization, cultural exegesis, how can we re-evangelize the West? So that's how that book came out. Let's start again and just rethink all this. All right, and the title of the book is? Evangelism in a Skeptical World. How to make the unbelievable news of Jesus more believable. Yeah, and it's so good. I think a lot about evangelism. I've read a lot of books on So Bernie came and said, you got to read this book by my friend Sam. And I was like, yeah, you know, okay, some guy from us. People, you know how they give you books all the time. But it really is phenomenal. I mean, guys, everybody listening really should acquire the book. You should get it. You should listen to it. You should read it. You should... You'll learn so much practical stuff, just like what we're doing right now. It'll be a huge blessing in your life. And then I think you've done some other things recently as well. Yeah, with City Bible Forum, we've produced the post-COVID playbook. So you can find it on bit.ly slash post-COVID playbook. And this all came about because when COVID came, suddenly we're all starting from scratch again, weren't we? Like I had 30 years of experience in evangelism and ministry. We've done our 10,000 hours of speaking to a live audience, whether it be 10 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people. And suddenly when COVID came, boom, we were all starting all over again. Our experience was zero, wasn't it? I remember I had to do a live talk to the UK on a screen and I thought, I have never done this before. I was more nervous before that talk than I've been before any talk. I didn't sleep the night before because I thought, how would this work? I'm just talking to a laptop (laughs) webcam in my bedroom and there's supposedly, you know, hundreds of people on the other side of the screen or we've had to pre-record talks and we thought, we have never been here before. So suddenly I thought, we need to write a book and produce some videos and re-equip people in ministry, no matter how experienced they are, on just simple things, how to talk to a camera, how to sound good on a camera, maybe how to get basics of lighting right and just things like that. And even what message, what our message could be in this post-COVID world. Like I said, when we produced it, it came out 
in May or June, and we felt like bozos because the underlying premise was our world will never be the same again. <laughs> and suddenly it seemed like our world was the same again, but then kaboom, the second wave came, and I thought, you know what, we called it, our world will never be the same again. There won't, it just like 9-11 changed everything. But we take it for granted that, you know, we have to take our shoes off when we go through an airport, get screened, empty our liquids. It wasn't like that before right. 9-11, but we take it as the new normal. You know, you can't take a backpack into a baseball game anymore. Well, that's because of 9-11. We forget that before you could. You, know? you couldn't swap boarding passes. Do you remember those days? Yeah. You can't do that anymore. And we forget this is the new normal. And I think COVID's the same. We would never go back to what we had before. And that's why we put out this post-COVID playbook for people in ministry. And so we're going to actually continue our conversation with Sam. We're going to take a break, close down this episode, but we are going to talk next with Sam about those very topics. So for our listeners, you'll have to tune in next week to hear our conversation with Sam about how to communicate in a post-COVID or COVID world, I guess we should say, since we're still in it. It might be too soon That's to right. call it. Yeah, I know. Like we're still in phase world. one in South Florida, you know, one of the <laughs> epicenters of the whole global pandemic. That's right. Anyway, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to our next episode. To all of our listeners, I hope you will get a hold of some of these resources. These are resources you can trust. These are resources that will be like you, that will help you. And I can't tell you enough how much Family Church has learned from Sam Chan. And actually, I've never spoken with Chan until the pandemic. So Sam and I are developing a friendship, you know, through our mutual friend, Bernie Cueto. So Sam, thank you so much for joining us. It means so much just that you're here with church for the rest of us. All the rest of you guys, we'll look for you next time. Looking forward to the rest of this conversation. This is Jimmy Scroggins, Leslie Bennett, engineer Carly Sealman, Sam Chan, church for the rest of us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins or check out FamilyChurchNetwork.com to chime in on our blog. We want your feedback on today's podcast. Plus, we want to know what you are doing because we want to learn from you too. Hey, until next time, this is Jimmy Scroggins and you've been listening to Church for the Rest of Us.